Well, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm so pleased to be here, to be all as Moran's officer and Fanshawe Lauren at UCD, Ethics of Sale Pibley, a Hulago Hithigal, Vibronorum Nakremenon, Vehin Shah, Nuravisha, Oyano, Vimima, New Helen, Agasanastro. It's such a very great pleasure to be here today and to meet you all. Thank you for the introduction. And also, I have to say, uh, I'm so pleased that there are people from public life here and uh, you're all very, very welcome. This is what I think the intention was. I should also say as well is that the paperback version of my book is available. <laughs> I should also say as well that uh, there will be, I hope, another volume coming on the delivery of uh, ideas into practice. Um, I have. I, I was in New Zealand and Australia uh, when, in fact, the the president launched the of the university launched uh, officially the, the the new centre, and I do want to thank him, uh, Professor Andrew Diggs, for the invitation he sent to me at that time. But I'm so pleased and and, and honoured that uh, Professor Mark Rogers uh, is met me today, and I so want to wish Professor Ronstadt uh, every success in, in running this new centre, and to thank Professor Maria um, Bagramian for her continuing interest in uh, in <laughs> May I begin by just commending the vision then, and the ethical commitment of all those who have worked with scholarly dedication to bring this centre to fruition. And I have no doubt whatsoever that the work of this centre will make a, a profound contribution in years to come in tackling the sources and consequences of a version of society in Ireland, in Europe and across the world which has become disconnected from ethical considerations and in so many ways from the philosophical and ethical roots that might lie at the foundation of any just and sustainable world. I've been thinking recently or the immense significance of Martin Heidegger's reply when asked about his particular positions he had taken. One had to get in step. So many have got in step. As we stand at a highly critical juncture in world history, we must ask ourselves not merely what kind of society served by what kind of economy do we wish for Ireland, for the European Union of which we remember, and for those living in vulnerable conditions across the globe. But more fundamentally, we must ask, is our scholarship, invoked so often as a source of policy, capable and willing to forge new connections of society, ethics, ecology and economy? The great intellectual challenges of our time depend for answers on how that fundamental question and how our universities, as I have emphasised many times, have a critical role to play in crafting and formulating its answer. This centre now is so welcome. There is, of course, another centre in University College Cork, which is the interdisciplinary centre for research on the moral basis of economy and society. There's a master's degree programme in DCU, with which I'm interacting to some extent as well. But really, the universities do matter, and the universities are terribly important. Already, I have to say the, inadequacy, the inadequacies of what I have described in terms of the connection between ecology, economy and society is now is, is not only dysfunctional, 
in terms of social cohesion. But it is a, a destructive model of connection that has revealed methodological flaws that have been recognised and as a result it has produced some altered thinking on research and economic indicators by international institutions such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. They've now begun to question what were once sacrosanct policy positions and the assumptions which underlay them. Many young scholars and a small number of policymakers are now beginning to recognise that the discipline of economics is not diminished by the encompassing of the concerns and contributions of sociology, of history and of culture, but rather are made stronger. So to welcome critique could have been made stronger still, of course, by the application of philosophy to interrogate the foundational assumptions of a discipline that so often in our own times goes unquestioned. Surely it is necessary to know and to understand the ontology and epistemology which underpins the economic models and methodologies which have been so influential over the past 30 years and which have determined the lives of so many. It simply does matter how we define the discipline of political economy. There is a difference between economia, classical Greek sense of household management, and a cabal, as one might say, for the advancement of mutual interests as has been advanced by Friedman and others, Catalaxis. The role of our universities in enabling discourse on these inescapable challenges, which include questions of conflict and displacement, climate change, a loss of trust on the European streets, sustainability, development and global poverty, is a vital one. As seats of pluralist scholarship, where it exists, or as advocates for it, you can only enrich any public debate or conversation at this time of great change and upheaval by your bringing of intellectual reflection, diversity of vision and inclusion to such conversations. When I was inaugurated as President of Ireland over six years ago, we were a society that had been left, if not for the first time, gravely wounded by the speculation, individualism and extreme form of neoliberal economics on which the Celtic Tiger's theoretical and policy position had been built. Put more plainly, the assumption of the inevitability of unilinear growth whose composition, definition and consequences were not allowed for debate. I spoke at that time of the necessity to work together to create a very different set of values that would enable the building of a sustainable economy and an ethical and inclusive society, a society that could restore trust at home, inspire respect and cooperation across the world. I also said in those early days of my presidency that mine would be a presidency that would seek to develop an ethical discourse that would place human flourishing at the heart of public action. In initiating that discourse, which would become known indeed as the President of Ireland's Ethics Initiative, I turned first to where I thought resources of an intellectual kind might lay, to our third-level institutions, to discuss and review the principles by which we might live and work ethically together as a society. Looking back on it, I think how often I quoted the later Kant and the great questions of how we might live and what we might know and so on. I have on several occasions described the crisis of recent years as being an intellectual crisis as well as an economic crisis. 
Now, if we recognise that the challenges of our time, our inter alia, intellectual in nature, <coughs> we are forced then to consider what role our public intellectuals and our institutions of learning have in supporting the building of a republic of ideas. By inviting the various universities to play a leading role in the Presence Initiative, my intention was to assist in that process. There is an unavoidable intellectual dimension to the job of work that has to be done, and that is why this university sector and so many others, with all its resources of mind and material at its disposal, was seen by me at the centre of this initiative in its early stages. And following that discussion, the debate broadened out to include community and non-governmental organisations, and then broadened out further to include many community discussions all over the country on how we could build together an ethical society. <coughs> I do so clearly recall, for example, the late John Monaghan of the Vincent de Paul, who was a very, very earlier contributor and who affiliated himself to the initiative, affiliated the organisation. So many others, students, voluntary groups, community groups. <coughs> New themes emerged from those conversations and many obstacles were identified. For example, the necessity of restoring trust in public institutions and the consequences of returning to what I've referred to as, if you like, to what I have read to a version of economy that was different to the depeopled version econ economy which had brought us into recession. Fundamental to the many conversations that took place throughout the initiative was the importance of placing social values at the heart of our economic policies if we are to build an active citizenship based on participation, equality, respect for all. Looking back, I often have asked myself, would it have been better to be more perceptibly polemical and to have spoken more directly as to how insatiable individualistic greed was driving our society? Should I have called it that? But I was rather anxious at the time to get beyond a justifiable rage. A significant and important aspect of that time too, and it had more than a linguistic significance, was that of the emergence of a new and dispassionate language, where citizens were now were referred to as customers, clients, service users, whose needs should be met as cost-effectively as possible by a public service who were told they no longer needed to do any more than make their delivery efficient in a dispassionate way as one agent of a market dealt with another agent of a market who, after all, was a stranger. Any moral notion of an obligation, even a desire, the reflection of a basic instinct to build the relationships of trust and cooperation which are essential to a democratic citizenry were seeping away. In recent years, this intensified in the commercial sector with commercial services such as banks dispensing altogether with any inherited legacy of contact with people, which after all had brought them into existence in the first place. Institutions closing throughout rural Ireland, the elimination of human contact in the institutions and what was left of them in the cities. And this produced, in turn, a kind of a, a pseudo-discourse that highlighted one of the biggest conflicts facing our society today, that of individualism versus collectivism. Indeed, the individualist credo gained such much traction in our society in recent years, and many began to view themselves and others as autonomous individuals 
consumers connected by purely mercurial links, like those of whom Sigmund, the late Sigmund Bauman wrote of as having been consumed in their consumption. In that discourse, too, housing became a commodity of the marketplace. And now we heard of the importance, rather, of people getting their, their foot on the first step of the property ladder, a financial transaction for those who could afford it. The concept of a home became disconnected from the concept of a community and the need for shared spaces, the value of shared spaces, the public world, the schools, parish centres, libraries, parks, where neighbours could gather and community spirit might be fostered. They were often absent from the discourse and the planning process. An unstated rejection of the role of the state as universal provider, universal provision prevailed and it found a central place in nearly all forms of political expression. The discourse, as I've said, on the nature of the public world was not welcome, <coughs> and happiness would come to be defined as an adequate level of security and consumption within a market. Workers became reduced <coughs> to the status of units of labour. Their need for dignity, security, personal development within work itself, subjugated to the demands of employers, themselves fiercely competing for marginal advantage. And here in Ireland, as across much of Europe, a precariat emerged, as many workers found themselves trapped in chronic job insecurity, moving from temporary contract to temporary contract, and often subjected to the indignity of zero-hour or if-and-when agreements. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions report in December, again it was referred to this weekend in the examiner by Michael Clifford, stated that nearly 160,000 people have significant variation in their hours of work. An increasing disconnect between the tasks of expanding the economy and pursuing human well-being as a shared public value has led to the perception by some that the greatest social good comes from enabling individuals to make personal decisions that are solely in their own best interest. This represents a very specific content given to the concept of freedom. That rhetoric of extreme individualism has allowed many to explain social problems in terms of individual behaviour, absolving those who dominate our social structures and those responsible for running our institutions from blame or responsibility. It has allowed the formation of social policies that pursue at most a paternalistic route and fail to tackle the root causes of issues such as poverty, homelessness, addiction, preferring to impose solutions that deprive often vulnerable citizens of autonomy and a voice. Indeed, the dividing of society into those who are vulnerable and those who are not vulnerable is perhaps to ignore the reality that vulnerability is something that is shared by all humans and is indeed central to our humanity. Viewing those who are vulnerable as something other and separate from ourselves risks the loss of that critical sense of shared humanity which lies at the root of truly just and equal societies. It is a view that enables the reduction of citizens who find themselves in a vulnerable situation to be defined as human carriers of problems that must be managed or impersonal statistics that must be improved or as passive victims of their own bad decisions whose primary need is paternalistic protection. 
that is a great denial of the dignity and autonomy that is the right of all humans and which must be a fundamental feature of citizenship in any functioning democracy. When we fail to recognise that essential humanity that lies at the heart of vulnerability, when we stigmatise with loose or lazy language those who live on the streets, suffer from addiction, or who have come to foreign shores as refugees escaping war and persecution, or indeed natural disasters, it becomes very easy to exclude them, to regard them as being outside or even below the community of rights holders in our society. It becomes very easy to dehumanise them, often in the form of derogatory language, a denial of services, a lack of voice, and even on occasion victimisation. Rather than enabling those deprived persons, families, communities, and vulnerable situations to reclaim their lost selves and become once again engaged citizens with a lifetime of possibility in front of them, we so often neglect the necessary structural changes and impose solutions that do not answer the rights of such people and indeed violate their essential dignity as fellow human beings. What happens, for example, what happens to the depopulation of rural Ireland, indeed the population of rural Europe, which is proceeding at a galloping pace, or the continuing violence in our cities, including our capital city, should concern us all. Those members of society, for example, whose consumption of what is the traded commodity that is the root of the killings and mutilation, must be asked to take responsibility for the consequences of their actions, which many of them ignore, not seeing any connection between their individual choices and the social destruction which follows. This current moment in human history, here and around the world, invites us to reassess then the relevance of moral sentiments such as care, trust, friendship, to reassert the centrality of principles of mutuality, reciprocity, redistribution, cooperation to the flourishing all so necessary to the flourishing of any social and economic life. And if we are to respond then, we need a pluralist intellectual environment and an activism that is radical in its moral reach informed as to diversity, research-based in an engaged manner, and above all, dialogical, and able to engage in a discourse in an open-ended way, respecting all the necessary ethics of, 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 of dialogical discourse. That is why I'm so glad to receive the opportunity to visit this new Centre for Ethics and Public Life, whose stated aim is to both support the development of research within this university, as you've heard, on theoretical and practical aspects of ethics, but to open up two-way lines of communication as well, even more important, with the wider community on matters of ethical concern. Your intention, I know, is to become a hub for international philosophical research, so necessary and a means by which that research can be incorporated into the ethical concerns of our wider society, both here in Ireland and around the world. But you must place yourself in the world of public discourse and seek allies. But I have no doubt that the intellectual work produced by this centre will contribute in an important way to the seeking of sustainable and innovative solutions to the challenges we face as we try to shape an ethical future. Here in Ireland and across the globe, we require such transformative thinking if our leaders and our institutions 
are to craft policies rooted in an ethical concern for the well-being, dignity and fundamental rights of the citizens whose needs should be placed at the very heart of those policies. I have to say frankly as well that in those early days of the Ethics Initiative, when I offered a critique I have just made now and invited a lengthy, in a lengthy paper a discourse on the assumptions of, of, philosophical, of and economic, the philosophical basis of economic practice, it was greeted with a certain amount of intolerance. I'm not convinced that that intolerance has gone. I think at best people may be drifting in an accepted, rather like in the Heidegrin sense, one had to take it in step. That is what I meant by that phrase uh, from the Heidegger conversation about people getting in step. It is necessary to break one's gate intellectually to actually get to a new place. I so therefore wish to you every success in your future endeavours. And I'm absolutely delighted and gratified that the theme of your discussions today, Making Ethical Ideas Matter, draws on the title of my own book, When Ideas Matter, which I view as an invitation to take my words and use them as part of a shared debate by us all, as both Irish and global citizens. And with humility, I thank you for that and for bringing forward the conversation we so desperately need. And I thank you for responding so positively to the invitation that was contained when I launched the President's Initiative in Ethics a few years ago. Got a thank you.